and you're back again with the Looking Glass Forum. We are informing you about the large-scale globalist agenda, the ideological framework of occult knowledge that anticipates the direction of history as we move forward, and the coming challenge to our survival that we need to prepare for. Remember, the lies are many, and the truth is one. So you're back here again with the Looking Glass Forum. I'm really just engaging back in, into the kind of prescient issues of our time, the kind of definitive political dilemmas that we're facing. Really no neutral ground at this point. If you look at the news, America has always been a revolutionary ideological concept, and we're back to our roots where we have to really decide what words mean and what the Constitution is and what who is going to prevail over the national intellectual establishment, the ethos that underpins our entire civilization here in America. And we can no longer leave the debate over racial disparity and the condition that we find it. The neo-Marxist extremists, which serve the agenda of the international communists who move forward, the totalitarian stratagem of the international elite, are playing hardball. And they have wound up and set forth all of their hordes to try to collapse this country. And we as a united national enterprise have no real ulterior motive towards controlling and, and subverting other nations. It's not something that we do. It's not something that we understand. We don't understand. Uh, we're not coming from this point of view that we have a world, global, ideological framework that we have to collapse everybody else into it. I mean, other countries are free to be El Salvadorian or German, and we in America are free to be Americans, and we understand these differences, but with the left, they have no boundaries, no borders, no way of saying that this country or this language or culture over here is unique and significant. They really want to submerge the entire world into the enslavement of their, their ideological premise. And on the contrary, we, we don't subvert other countries. Our national ethos and our capitalist policies seek to build and enrich other nations as partners. And that is not how international communism works. Their ideology requires independent nations and popular representative governments to be erased from history. And communism dictates that all people become a global collective of workers serving the global state. And they describe this absolutist enslavement to a universal, unchanging deep state power structure as a liberation. So they're coming in to knock down your country, destroy all national borders, create a universal global serfdom, and this they will describe as a liberation from Zionist capitalists. So we're all being enslaved by Zionist capitalists, and these Antifa, Marxist, Black, you know, Black Lives Matter groups are going to come in serving the international communist agenda to liberate us all from so-called Rothschild Zionists who control the world. And in place of these different nations and borders and jurisdictions of courts and legal frameworks that we as a people agree to build up as a country will be, of course, all torn down. And these Rothschild banking Zionists, these are really the targets. These are the, the shadowy boogeyman who are the targets of Antifa and revolutionary abolitionist movement and the Democrat Party and BLM. We, we've seen the Democrat party swing with a, a wide move towards anti-Semitism lately. So this is going to be pro-Palestinian, anti-Semitic violence, which underpins the BLM Marxists and the Antifa Marxists that we see as the street rabble, who fundamentally oppose the Democratic Republic of the, of the United States of America. So the amalgam 
of internet-driven anti-Jewish conspiracy theories and the pro-Marxist radicalism of college campus propaganda, ultimately, is a confluence there. And this political and ideological framework, even though it's based in just conspiracy, conspiracy theories, they're going to really direct their polarized political hatred at the Jewish communities. And they label them as Khazars. So this is a fictitious portrayal of the Jewish people as a false Khazarian race who stole the culture of the real Jews who disappeared long ago. And, and, and so this is what, this is kind of how you're getting into this falsified history, these false conspiracy theories like this, which attempt to discredit and historically erode the legacy of the Jewish people with pseudo-intellectual revisionist history. And so this kind of propaganda, like those absurd notions we see coming out of Europe, that the Holocaust never happened, these ideas were once totally irrational, but those who propagated these ideas, viruses, knew all along that someday new generations of communist radicals would seize on these lies in order to take up the cause of leftism and atheism. And now the neo-Marxists reject the idea of God altogether and consider the Jewish people to be great conspirators, false Jews who are really Khazars, who faked the Holocaust to take away the land from the Palestinians who are oppressed. And this is the informed intellectual position of these neo-Marxists. And what is really missing from these conspiracy, conspiracy theories? How about Islam? Or how about the incredible political and financial power of the Vatican? What about the dangerous Grand Lodge of Cairo, which is Islamic Freemasonry? They call it the Islamic Brotherhood. You can talk, you know, you can watch on C-SPAN as admirals and different people discuss the influence of the Islamic Brotherhood. What is that? What's the Grand Lodge of Cairo? And, or what about the Jesuit order, who really controls Washington, D.C. at this point? You can't really go to a really good law school unless you go to a Jesuit law school. I mean, what is Hillary Clinton, if not just a graduate from Fordham? So these other forces, which really play no part in the conceptualized and pseudo-intellectual premise of the Marxists, they really leave out key components and so they're saying that these, these other forces play no part in the establishment of global government and global empire, but it's really only the Jews who control the world according to these ideological dynamics. And so you can see what really pushes the framework of this anti-Semitism forward. And when you go to these rallies, you can't criticize Islam or Sharia law because then you're Islamophobic. You, know, you, become, you get framed and polarized as, as a Zionist. So we really need to take a closer look at Adolf Hitler, who learned and believed in this book called the, the, the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion. And this was a dangerous conspiracy theory at the time that accused the Jews. Hitler believed in this casuistry, and so does Antifa today. They are socialists, they are un-American, and they are Jew haters. So let's just get that all straightened out. And as we watch the neo-Marxists, these pro-communists, anti-Semitic, anti-Zionist, pro-Palestinian hate groups move around the country. They're trying to tear down American history of the Civil War, which is really the Democrat history of the Southern, the Southern Confederacy. And they try to spur on the American populace into this racial war, this polarized environment where people are supposed to be angry about the past and to, to have a cause to be in conflict with their neighbors and their communities. And these are the kind of justifications we see that people are looting other people's stores in order to 
to right the wrongs of the past and racism. Of course, these are all idea viruses. These are ideological constructs that motivate people towards a most destructive end. So let's go ahead and take a We have a little clip here I want to take a listen to. Mark Levin really kind of breaks down the issue here for us. So, major media in this country is pushing the race baiting. Pushing racism. And you can see by a number of the guests, the columnists, the op-ed writers, news analysts, you can see on CNN and MSNBC, the miscreants and malcontents they have as contributors for the most part. White privilege, white supremacy. You're now all white supremacists. Did you know this? And it's in your DNA. You can't fix it. So if you can't fix it, according to them, then why do we try to fix it? If we're stuck with it, there's nothing we can do about it. Think about how stupid that is. Don't even make sense, these folks on the left. This is all an ideology. An ideology that began really in the 60s, perhaps earlier, but really pushed in the 60s, and half a century later, here we are. The media push it, tenure professors push it, their students push it. Who the hell do you think's in the streets? You got criminals, we know that. Those are the people who've been, uh, who've been detained so far, and college graduates or college students see these Black Lives Matter movements I saw it outside of Washington, D.C. Look like there were more white people involved in that than black people. Just from an observation, anecdotal. Angry. Oh, very angry. Because you're white. You're privileged. And you don't agree with Marx. You don't agree in destroying your society and to recreate this brand new paradise, you see. Pol Pot did when he killed 25% of his people in Cambodia. Like Mao did when he killed 60 million of his own people. Like Stalin did when he killed 30 million of his own people. Like Castro did when he killed tens of thousands of his own people. And we can go on and on and on. The people in Cuba are enslaved. Many of the people in Russia are enslaved. Many of the people in China are enslaved. You just don't get to see it. You see the genocide. You see what they do to the Muslims and the Christians and others in China. And that's the movement that Black Lives Matter embraces. Now, one other thing. I know this is a sore subject, but somebody's got to talk about it. So I will. The rise of anti-Semitism in the black community is... Shocking. Or maybe it's just coming to the fore. Whether it's the Hasidic Jews in Brooklyn who are beaten up regularly, whether it was the riots in LA, 25% of the synagogues defaced, whether it is what certain football players and basketball players have to say about Jews, Black Lives Matter in their mission statement. Of course, targeting not Iran, not Cuba, not China, but Israel with the BDS movement and their anti-Semitic sloganeering. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. I don't 
don't watch ESPN anymore. I'm wondering, do the sportscasters at ESPN and the ex-jocks who are sportscasters now, do they walk off stage when they learn about BD, about the Black Lives Matter and their anti-Semitism? I don't think they do. They walk off the set. Well, the mayors, de Blasio, Bowser and others in these cities paint Black Lives Matter BLM on their streets. They embrace the anti-Semites. And you could hear, as we could hear in Washington, <clears throat> Jew-hating comments. I've told you this before. If you hate America, you hate Israel. If you hate Israel, you hate America. It's just the way it goes down, pretty much. How many stories have you seen on ESPN or CNN or MSNBC? And I'll even add my, my beloved Fox. The anti-Semitism that's taking place. You understand that the man that Joe Biden met today... The father of the man who was shot in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Did you read the things that he had to say about Jews, Christians? They're barbaric. But Joe Biden met with him. Why did Joe Biden meet with him? What was the point of meeting with the father? He has the most loathsome statements, most bigoted statements you can imagine about Jews and Christians and white people. Why would Joe Biden talk to or meet with that gentleman? Why? I'll be right back. Mark Lupin. Alright, so we'll just leave it right there. You can see that we're really getting into the uh, the deep water, the deep end of the pool here with a lot of these subject matters. We're, we're, it's cutting down to the, the cultural bone. And we have to understand that there's people out there who don't have any interest in the Bible or the people that the Bible establishes, namely the Jewish people. They don't have any interest in that. I think that the Democrat Party, being the old Confederacy of the South, you tried to fight for the ownership of slaves and to keep slavery intact in the United States. Um, Jefferson Davis, the, the president of the Confederacy, or the Democrats, if you will, was receiving uh, letters from the papacy in support, as we've discussed before. And I think that there's no doubt that they're interested in seeing the black community within in the United States remain in the hands of the Nation of Islam and Louis Farrakhan, and not interested in seeing the black community uh, take hold of its Baptist, uh, Southern Gospel, Southern Baptist, full gospel, church-going roots. And so that's really what you're seeing here religiously is a split in the parties, ideologically, and as far as matters of religion. And what's interesting in the political left and the communists in the West here in America find it interesting to try to attach Islam um, to the leftist credo and try to exacerbate the differences between the ideological and, and religious beliefs between Muslims and Christians. But if you go to a communist country like China, they have the entire Muslim population of Uyghurs there totally enslaved and uh, concentration camps where they're virtually not allowed to leave. They're economically enslaved and they're, and then they're taken to re-education camps where they're taught to no longer be Muslims. And we in here in the West find that to be completely horrifying that you could have your religion systematically deleted in subsequent generations and by a totally controlling, you know, autocratic state apparatus that just selects you 
out to to wean you and your following generations or perhaps just to kill you off and to have you fixed so that you couldn't even reproduce any more children or carry on any kind of religious family traditions. These are the kind of horrors that a communist state brings about. And yet here in the United States, the left, the neo-Marxists pretend as if they're the protectors of Islam and the Palestinians. So their whole ideological perspective is quite cynical, and they're really willing to do whatever it takes to destroy this national this national enterprise here in America. So as we're going forward here, I, I need to establish the nexus between the anti-Semitic kind of hyper-propaganda that's kind of developed over time. You see it a lot in journalists, the New York Times, the Washington Post, other places. The, the entire Democratic Party at this point is being kind of subsumed by this anti-Semitic subculture that derives all of its wild theories from different historical revisionist aspects like the, the, the college textbooks the howard zinn is that am i saying that right the zinnification of history that tries to paint these broad kind of dualistic parallels between right and left paradigms so it really ultimately becomes a network for leftist propaganda that gives you the sense of global aspiration global liberation that comes with the idea of collapsing all nations into a one world order which is really what communism is and we can see that going back to the, the Illuminati, if we go back to the 1700s, you can see that they all wanted to destroy the, all national states and just have one universal empire. So it's really just back to Babel, back to the Tower of Babel. They really wanted to, to make a universal, singular kingdom. Ultimately, that would fall apart, and the world would break into pieces and nations. Egyptians, the Babylonians, the different cultures. But that wasn't the original intent. So we go into a cult doctrine, we're seeing that move towards globalization again in the United Nations. And it's understood, even though there's different terms, socialism, Marxism, communism, globalism, these are different words, but they all really mean the same thing. So you have to understand that, that even though they're operating out of different kind of compartments and different areas within academia, within different departments and disciplines. They're trying to use their scientific discipline or their area of expertise in order to move forward an age-old agenda. So in order to understand that, we need to really, I'm going back to the propaganda of the Nazis. And this is a really interesting uh, article here from Oxford Academic. And it's entitled, Believing in Inner Truth, the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion in Nazi Propaganda, 1933 to 1945. This is by Randall L. Bitwork, Holocaust and Genocide Studies, Volume 29, Issue 2, pages 212 to 229. This is fall 2015. In the abstract, we can read here, although most leading Nazis realized that the, the protocols of the learned elders of Zion was spurious document, they found it useful in promoting belief in the international Jewish conspiracy of which they were already convinced. Author, authorship and other details were irrelevant. They averred if the book expressed inner truth. So we'll go on with the article. The Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion is a forgery of remarkable attraction for anti-Semites. Its astonishing contents also draw the attention of those who find it absurd and repellent, and who sometimes take it more seriously than the anti-Semites do. Norman Cohn's Warrant for Genocide, The Myth of the Jewish World, World conspiracy, wide conspiracy, and the protocols of the learned elders of Zion suggest that it had been 
great influence over Nazism. The Volkenscher Beobachter invoked them constantly, while Julius Streichert's weekly Dear Sturmer alternated between elaborations of the protocols and lurid stories of German maidens raped by Jews and German children ritually murdered. Influential early students of Nazism, such as Hermann Reichning and Konrad Haydn, who published during the Nazi era, believed that it had had an enormous impact on Hitler, and their often unfounded statements continue to be influential today. This is an enormous literature on the persecution of Jews during the Third Reich. A few books focus on propaganda, and little on the literature discusses the use of the protocols in the, in the propaganda. This article examines the role of the protocols from Hitler's takeover in 1933 to the end of the war. Its review, its distribution, its employment at various levels of the propaganda system at specific times, discuss why it appeared so rarely in Nazi propaganda, and conclude with an observation on analogous uses of the protocols today. Hitler and Goebbels. What did the top Nazi leadership think? Although Hitler and Goebbels were believers in the international Jewish conspiracy, neither believed that its existence depended on the protocols of the learned elders of Zion being what it claimed to be. On April 10th, 1924, the young Goebbels, jo Joseph Goebbels wrote in, in his diary, I believe that the protocols of learned elders of Zion is a forgery, that it, it is not because the worldwide, the worldview of Jewish aspirations expressed therein are too utopian or fantastic. One sees today how one point after the other of the protocols is being realized, but rather because I do not think that the Jews are so completely stupid as not to keep such important protocols secret. I believe in the inner, but not the factual truth of the protocols. At about the same time, Adolf Hitler was dictating Mein Kampf. He too was thinking about the protocols. So it's going to go on to quote Hitler, but I don't really care about what Hitler says. He's an idiot. But the point is, that the Nazis at the time were seizing upon this document, which appeared to be a forgery, but was so compelling, the learned elders of the protocol, one of the protocols of the learned elders of Zion, and it had come out, and it basically scapegoated the Jewish people, and it, like I said, it, it was something that was written by an earlier generation for the purpose of giving aid and comfort, if you will, or creating a bulwark for future anti-Semites. And future anti-Semites like Goebbels and Hitler here seized on it and used it, and the people believed it, and they caused the people to hate the Jews and to partake in this persecution against them. So, we look at Oxford Press here. These people who are, who are literature and literary academics can't ignore this, and this is what the article is all about. So you have to learn to understand that Antifa and these leftists and BLM, these neo-Marxists on the streets who are trying to cause these racial dilemmas to create this conflagration between peoples who are one people in one nation in America, finding a reason for Americans to fight one another over historical grievances of the past is really what these fascists, they're called anti-fascists, 
but criminals can go around and commit crimes with a hat on that says anti-criminal, and you have to understand that there's an intellectual war taking place. This is an info war, and it's a psychological test of our ability to survive, and it represents a challenge to our survival as a country, to understand that we are one people and that these agents of controversy among us are there really to create a disturbance, a disturbance of the peace, if you will, and the tranquility of our society, and ultimately to create a dilemma where none exists. And then you can see like how Biden is coming out, the, uh, the neo-Confederate, the, uh, the Democrat here, who was friends with the, uh, the KKK, the Klansman, this guy Joe Biden, comes out and, and says that Trump should stop stirring up all the violence. So they've created this huge catastrophe on the left through Obama and through his agents and using the criminal culture, the urban hip-hop drug culture that influences the young people, makes them want to go out and shoot each other over $200 sneakers, has been easily cobbled into a uh, pseudo-revolutionary kind of psychological operation. And they're cannon fodder, ultimately. And you can see that as, as the, the Trump administration is finding ways around using federalization of the police and the Insurrection Act and the ways of avoiding that Insurrection Act and using different you know, policing tactics in order to take these groups apart. That's what you're going to see. And ultimately, they were able to find that guy who shot the, the uh, Patriot Prayer guy out there. They, they found him and had a shootout with him. They were able to find him because he was there at the time. Because they had a, he had a phone. Everywhere you go with your phone is leaving a record of everywhere you were every minute of the day. Even if you put it on block, you know, if you take the, that doesn't matter what you do, your phone is going to tell them where you were at a given time. And when they were able to find the five or ten different phones in the area, they were, there, they were able to find out just by social networking and social media who this person was within hours. So you guys need to be aware that their network of surveillance is asymmetrical and it's ubiquitous. Using metadata, using cameras, using people's phones, using devices, using the collective information. These, these Antifa idiots want to go out there and make sure that they flag themselves on the internet. And so, you know, everything is wide open. There's no way to to be anywhere, any given time, without the NSA and the federal apparatus knowing about it. So it's just given. Even Peter Strzok, they talk about the the, uh, the text with his lover. This is an FBI guy, and he wasn't able to hide his affair while he was secretly going about to take down the newly elected president of the United States. So all these records, going back years, all of our records, are totally open for the public, for really for anyone to find it. And that's what we're going to see here in the future as this kind of, this percolates up to our understanding and people start to realize that, that all of our records are, are, that privacy is really a thing of the past. I want to go back to pointing out that the left and the, the neo-Marxist, neo-communists in America today have no problem trying to find ways to pit people against each other based on their religion or their race. But if you go to a place that's ultimately a totalitarian communist state like China, the Chinese Communist Party, you can see that they round people up based on their race and their and their uh, religion. So we have these Uyghurs who are ba basically being deleted out of existence by the slow campaign of um, you know of annihilation in these camps, and their entire religion and culture and history is being instead of studied by National Geographic, it's being stomped out of existence by the hobnailed boot of the Chinese police state. So that's really what it is. So let's listen to another interesting clip here that we have.
your last episode of War College, and it's the great power competition segment with Matthew Kronig, August 26th, and let's listen to a little bit of that. Substance economy to a middle income economy where China is now, if you look at GDP per capita, going from that middle income economy to an advanced um, industrial economy like the US, Germany, Japan is, is harder. And so we'll see if China can pull it off. But in terms of the uh, conditions of the Chinese people, you know, there is a, it is an autocratic state, and they, they do, the Chinese Communist Party does engage in gross human rights uh, abuses. And so you mentioned the Uyghurs and Xinjiang. So this is a Muslim minority group in Western China. China has had some terrorist um, attacks uh, coming from this group, some stabbings and train stations and, and things like that. But now China is essentially engaged in ethnic cleansing. They have between a million and two million of these people in prison camps. And they're really they're sterilizing uh, women, forced reports of forced abortion. And so, you know, they're really doing their best to eliminate this Muslim group from China altogether. You know, usually references to Nazi Germany are way overblown, but in this case, the Chinese Communist Party is doing their best to, to make it uh, relevant. It's really an egregious case of, of ethnic cleansing. This is something I get pushback from some of my uh, friends on the political left about, and I would just encourage anyone that kind of has that point of view to uh, not look at Western sources, but literally look at the media that the Chinese state produces about the camps and about the Uyghurs. Look at what China is telling itself, and I think that in itself will be very telling. Is it too strong to call it a cultural genocide, at least? I mean, genocide's such a loaded word, but it does seem like people are being having their culture taken apart. If not, I mean, if people are being sterilized, and that's, uh, you know, not a cultural genocide, that's potentially an actual genocide. All right, so I think we'll stop it right there. I think that that's really going to make the point here and articulate really what we're talking about. There's a really, in this thrust for total control and domination of the globe by these the, the neo-Marxists who are really being funded by the international elite to topple popular government, to destroy democratic institutions, and just ultimately to just throw the American citizenry and the people of America on bonfire of their new uh, their new world system that they're trying to put in place through the United Nations. Even the Democrats are talking about having United Nations troops come in and to settle the, the problems between uh, you know the different parties here in the United States. So if, if we have civil strife and a civil war, will the United Nations try to come in and, and to quell uh, the, uh, the, the people? And that's what we're really ultimately dealing with here. We have to realize that the the campaign for world communism is going to wind up with us all in these camps that the uh, that the Uyghurs have found themselves in, and it's the same thing what happened when when uh, when Stalin and Hitler worked together. Um, Stalin Stalin built these huge camps, and then ultimately Hitler went and invaded areas in Poland and took over the camps that Stalin built and used them against. Like camps like Auschwitz, several of those camps were built by Stalin, and Hitler came in and took them over, and his troops used them for their own purposes. But it was really just one plan, and the plan was to exterminate and annihilate the Jews. And so we're really seeing that come back again, that anti-Semitism is on the rise again, as these Antifa groups who are, who are here to destroy our economic system, destroy our country, destroy our institutions and our history, and ultimately to free Palestine 
and um, Linda Sarasor and the whole crowd shows you that with care and all of them lining up on the left shows you that they're here to have a great uh, jihad against the Protestant biblical institutions here in America that allow for freedom of thought, freedom of conscience, freedom of the voter to own property. These are not things that historically Islam or papal inquisitions and kingdoms that were set up by the Pope, they, they were ultimately going to reduce us all to serfdom and slavery. Ultimately, the Pope and Islam were constituent partners within keeping the transatlantic slave trade in place for many, many centuries, as we've seen in previous episodes. So these establishment of facts over time, the accumulation of knowledge will really give you the power that you need to understand the fight that you're in so that you can know where you stand when all these different political gray areas make it hard to know where you're really coming from and what what it is that you really believe. And ultimately, I think that the Roman church would like to be the universal monolithic archetype for Christianity. But ultimately, it's not. There's another Christianity, a Bible Christianity, a full gospel Christianity that likes the book of Revelation and likes to read the gospel, the King James Version in English for ourselves. And ultimately, the priestcraft of Rome likes to hand out their their communion wafers, give the address, and do the ritual of Rome through their appointed priests. And that's how you receive religion. And over here in the Protestant faith, we receive religion when we read our Bible and seek the Lord, and he gives us direction as the priest and the king of our own home. So we don't have some Roman priest in our town doing an invocation of a liturgy or a certain um, incantation that they learned in Latin that comes from many, many, many centuries ago. And so these kind of rituals and these forms are really the same kind of priestcraft that we've seen rise out of Egypt and out of ancient Babylon. And it's not really conducive or compatible with the religion of the Lord that we see in the Bible, in the Brit Hadashah, in the New Testament. So there's a lot more room for learning. And these kind of when you learn, it's like when a plant receives sunlight, you grow. You start to grow out of the box or out of the, the shadow that you've been in. And you begin to learn this new information. You shouldn't be threatened by it, but you should learn to recognize that you can free your mind. And that's what we're going to try to do in this episode. Let's listen to another little interesting clip here that talks about the really the huge human rights abuses and the hypocrisy of communist China. And like I talked to my daughter, who has concerns about racism Ultimately, we have no problem with the beautiful history and the wonderful culture and heritage of the Chinese people, but ultimately their government there in China is a communist, abusive dictatorship that they're really saddled with and they're enslaved by. So we have to really feel sorrow and sympathy for the Chinese people. As soon as their government is destroyed and they're able to have freely freely held popular institutions and elections in their country, they'll become a great nation. Uh, so it's really ultimately communism that we really need to defeat. So let's listen to this clip here. All right, lots of stuff to get to. Also, my friend Mike Opelka was at the White House last night. You know Mike. And uh, he got the violent mob treatment when he was leaving, too, and um, and the D.C. police. And uh, Mike's going to Mike's gonna tell us about what, uh, what happened to him last night leaving the White House. Right now, let's head to the phones. Let's go to Jerry calling from Fairfield, Pennsylvania. Jerry, you're on the Chris Plant Show. Hey, Chris. Great show. Love it. Thanks, Jay. You know, here's my problem. We, we saw the, the comedy show last week, which presented no new solutions. They never do. It's the same old rhetoric, same old hate. They trump out every year. 
and you scare grandma, scare everybody. It's the same crap. What astounds me is this media kills me. Black Lives Matter, right? So why are 71% of Planned Parenthoods in urban neighborhoods? How come they can't explain that? How come they now the athletes are walking away for racial injustice? Right. Yet LeBron James, millions of dollars a year off of Nike, run child labor sweatshops. And, I mean, and for, and for, yeah, forced labor, Uyghurs, uh, because of their ethnicity, they're Chinese, uh, Turks, and uh, they speak another language, and they're Muslims, and they're used as slave labor, and LeBron James gets rich off of slave labor with his slave shoes. I mean, what, where, is the, uh, where is the media? I mean, I call it the Nazi media because that's what it is. Because Joseph Goebbels said one time, you keep telling the lie long enough, people will eventually believe it. What I don't understand, Chris, is how people can be so dumb. I'm sorry, but to, to be a liberal in this country and be that stupid astounds me. Yeah, I mean, it look, I think, does. I think it's a pretty clear decision on Election Day. You're with the mob burning and looting. Uh, or, you know, uh, President Trump's tweets, you know, it's, uh, you, you decide, oh, his tweets hurt my feelings. Um, okay, well, I hope your business wasn't burned to the ground. I mean, again, Jerry, the, the businesses are boarding up in Washington, D.C. again because, well, a couple of things, the 57th anniversary today of the Martin Luther King March on Washington, uh, but the left is a violent criminal mob in the street, and we know that between Antifa and Black Lives Matter and the rest. Uh, and then there's Election Day coming up, so the businesses are going to board up through Election Day because they know that the Democratic Party is completely, violently, criminally out of control, that there are apparently millions of them, certainly many thousands of them, that are completely criminal insane and uh, and again their heroes in in Kenosha Wisconsin are sex offenders with uh, with uh, warrants out for them uh, with gun crimes in their past with domestic abuse crimes in their past these are their heroes and the villain is the 17 year old that was running away from the mob that was attacking him and throwing things at him. this is the Democratic Party so you can see there really how the dialectic, the political dialectic, is really splitting up. And it becomes clear that we're getting more into this area of psychological duality of the black and white, this kind of supplanted confrontationalism that we have to have being superimposed within our, within our culture. And you can see that it's really coming out of academia. Once again, the whole idea of Marxism, which really came from Hegel, which goes back to the French Revolution and back to the effects of the Illuminati coming out of Germany. And of course, they would collapse a couple of monarchs this way. The, the monarchy in France was, was destroyed through this sudden political popular upheaval. And it was performed through the Jacobins, who were a, a group who had a, a falsely Jewish name, so that it was done in the name of the Jews to, to presuppose this idea that there was a Jewish conspiracy in the background. But if we look into the history of it, we can see that there was Illuminati agents operating within the lodges there. And as we're looking at this kind of Jacobinism coming out, this, this supplanting of anti-Semitic ideology into future combatants, so future people that are going to be taken within your ideology, within, you know, Hegel, Hegelianism or Marxism, or ultimately communism itself, would be this outgrowing attempt to cause a cataclysm between all authority. So all employees and employers, all citizens and all aspects of government, between the police and the people on the street, at all levels, 
You're trying to create precursors that will bring about a social cataclysm. And so that's what you're seeing within the Illuminati. And in and, and today's day and age, we have these actors within state government, city council, in the federal government, within the judiciary, within big tech, who are all proponents of this neo-fascistic communism, communist takeover, and they're operating together. And you can see it in Hollywood and in media, and it creates this ubiquitous sense of change and these radical organizers that like the Black Lives Matter movement, who can see that that's really just the extension of the politics of Obama. And so this leftism that's taken over the Democratic Party doesn't really have any connection with the Confederacy that tried to keep slavery. So the, the old slave masters have now become the anti-racist Marxists and communists who are going to overturn our entire government and return us all into slavery. That's kind of what we're dealing with. It's an ultimate ideological landmine. So these are ideological suicide bombers that have come in to just create a, a, a catastrophe, even in their own town, their own streets, between their own neighbors. So let's listen to this other clip here. This is an interesting take that we have here on geopolitics and empire on August 26th. Let's take a listen. Groups, And that's, imagine if 50,000 Facebook mods were actually out there trying to talk to people opposed to just going around banning everybody like what what would actually be making the world a better place I would totally agree. And we've seen that in the past examples of you know, nonviolent civil action from Martin Luther King and Gandhi uh, and so on. Um, and speaking of you know, uh, ideological uh, extremism, I did want to get your thoughts briefly on what you see happening uh, in the U.S., you know, this breakdown of society and order uh, and this push by this radical, I don't know what you call it, Jacobin left-wing uh, movement at the moment that is using cancel culture to on-person uh, individuals organizations, as well as literally burning down businesses and entire cities, it seems to be, you know, working in, in some aspects with uh, big tech and online censorship. So what do you make of, you know, the riots we're witnessing from Portland to Wisconsin and the threat that this movement poses in leading to a, a violent political conclusion in America? I think that it's really terrifying. And to be honest, I do feel like it is connected to what has been going on on major social networks i you know you you it's the rat it is the radicalization they have been fueling the radicalization uh in politics and you know even people who are republicans and democrats at this point i would argue have almost become radicalized so you know, family members can't have conversations anymore you know, they, they, they are disowning each other. No one wants to talk. Everyone is so emotional. There's no room for any any freedom to disagree and, you know, just love each other and have compassion for people who have who have other ideas. That's out the window. And so we're seeing this, like, manifestation of, you know, toxic online culture in the real world. It's get, Things are getting violent. And, I mean... I just feel like there's a, a little bit of a tone deafness happening. Like I saw this article out of uh, the Intercept a couple days ago, where, and and it was talking about how all these far left accounts had had been taken down from YouTube or uh, Facebook because of you know the Antifa and maybe it was related to violence or or some something around those lines, and you know they were just acting like surprised. And acting as if their violence was more justified 
than you know the Nazi violence and you know oh far right extremists have had this number of deaths and far left have only had this number of deaths and even if that number is true which it may be there may be more more far right you know recent far right associated uh, murders I, I I haven't dug into that but I'm willing to accept that that's possible it does murder is murder so and there's no such like Getting into this whole like justified murder scenario where you know our murder is good murder, our our riots are are, are good riots. I think that that's not the place that we want to be. <laughs> we, we we all want to be on the nonviolent train. As the whole debate unfolds within America, you have these activists taking direct action, and they're trying to, we hear now that some of these Antifa groups are trying to go around like they're Q supporters, or they're dressing in different different types of groups, so it's kind of like these false flag riots now that are, are, are developing. But be that as it may, we have to recognize that there's ultimately this push towards a clash between the idea of racial dynamics. So black versus white. And so these ideas that you have blacks and whites and you have to belong to one group. So now it's kind of like bifurcated now where it's like blacks and browns. So people that have you know, indigenous peoples who, who have more melanin in their, in their skin are supposed to be opposed and in conflict with with pale-faced people who have less melanin in their skin. So you can see the whole debate is completely convoluted at this point and it really doesn't make any sense anymore. Because like we said before, these racial stereotypes are really incongruent. And so you can have people that look one way and they don't fit into the stereotypical mold that these political agitators are trying to foist us into. So not all black people are indigenous victim groups. Not all white people are oppressive racist overlords or supremacists. Some people are coming to America who are white for political asylum to be, you know, to come to a place that's free, uh, to come to a land where they're protected. And that's true for all people. It doesn't matter what kind of melanin they have in their skin. So these kind of antiquated racial dynamics from the 1800s that are being foisted on us from the Confederate Democrat party, who's being controlled by Marxists. And of course, Marx with his racism, if you go back to the 1700s and try to go try to figure out, you know, what Marx was writing about, that there were really, it's pulling us back into the psychopathology of previous centuries and the delusional, you know, self-loathing racist dynamics that are kind of coming to the top of academia now are really hitching us into the past. So as we move forward um, and we try to do a trip to Mars and we try to be the first in space to go to Mars, and we try to develop technical strategies for space so that uh, the killer robots and satellites that are the, the Russians are putting into orbit won't take out our, our ability to, to keep ourselves safe here in America. As we're moving into the future, and we're moving into a 5G technology era, these ideas of racial stereotypology, if you will, no longer fit our intellectual understanding. So people have been in this country for a long time and come from all different backgrounds, from South America, or from Europe, or from all over the world. And we've all become friends. We've all become a community. We've all intermarried and have kids who have all different kinds of ancestry and different racial and ethnic backgrounds. And that is what America is all about. We are one people. And so this core of this ideology of Marxism tries to tear us apart along those lines, and they're, they're failing. But it is painful, and we have to have this kind of debate. 
So let's listen to something that Brian Kilmeade was talking about. And when Brian Kilmeade starts to talk about it, then you know that really it's at the top of the food chain as far as political and uh, social discourse. So let's have a listen. A policeman in, in 1950 is different than 2020. We know that. It doesn't mean bad or good. It means different. So then we, you could have a comprehensive look. We all don't have to be against each other. And in the end, it's Antifa and these, these militant groups who hate this country who will be isolated. Well, Brian, I, look, I, I, and I think the drawing distinctions is always important here. I mean, there are, there are bad cops, but the Blake case, I think, is far from settled as to what happened there. I mean, the question of a knife, the question of his record, all of these things go into it. And, you know, when Rudy Giuliani was mayor, one of the great things that he did, I believe, to, to change the tide of crime and just the public's view of these situations was to say that when there was a shooting involving the police or any act of violence, that let's slow down, let's give the police the benefit of the doubt until the facts are in. This, this rush to condemn the cops uh, is, is to me a stereotyping that we all abhor stereotypes, apparently, except when it comes to the cops then it's okay to stereotype them. And I think that until this country begins to view the police as part of the solution instead of the problem, and if you read the New York Times, if you read the Washington Post or CNN, the police are invariably described in stereotypical ways as the problem. And I think until we, we break through that, and I think the president could do a better job of not just saying we love our police. Uh, yes, but he has to acknowledge there are bad police. And I think the proper way to describe the relationship is that we invest in them this power of life and death. I would convene we a race council with an answer. I get prestigious people on both sides of the aisle. Let's talk about racial justice in this country and come up with some type of conclusion at the end of it. Give them a few months, almost a think tank, um, almost a Simpson Bowles-like committee, and see what we can work on to make the country, uh, if, it, if not it's actual, perceived to be any unequal, let's try to make it better. And let's just say, don't, don't pretend like there's not some racial injustice in this country, but let's look at it. But if you want to hear going over the top, I asked Pete to pull this cut from, a, from Michelle Obama's podcast. Let's listen together. Cut 38. I can tell you a number of stories like that when I've been completely incognito during the eight years in the White House, walking the dogs on the yeah, canal. Yeah. People will come up and pet my dogs, but will not look me in the eye. They don't know it's me. And it's, it, you know, what, what white folks don't understand, it's like that that is so telling uh, of how white America views people who are not like them. You know, we don't exist. I don't know what you, I mean, really? I've, I've never seen that in my life. Someone pet a dog without acknowledging that someone's walking the dog? 
Yeah, you know, I, Brian, I, I read the transcript of that before, and uh, now hearing it, uh, what it strikes me is what she's saying is people don't recognize me. They don't know it's me. They don't know it's Michelle Obama. I used to be first lady. I am somebody. Who are you? Who are you just to pet my dog and not and not pay respects to me? It's not about race. She's now become in her own mind especially entitled. I mean, I, I find it shocking that that she would even be so unself-aware as to say something like that. People pet my dog. They don't look at me and say, oh, hello, Mr. White Man. How are you? Are, are you happy today? I mean, what is she talking about? What kind of fantasy world is she living in? Does she feel so entitled to be treated as someone special? She talked about people cutting in front of her. Oh, yeah. You want to hear that? At, Let's at, listen at, to at that. McDonald's. Cut 30, didn't, yeah, actually, it wasn't McDonald's. Sake. Let's listen. Cut 37. When we were stopping to get ice cream, there was a line, and once again, when I'm a, just a black woman, I notice that white people don't even see me. So I'm standing there with two little black girls, another black female adult, they're in soccer uniforms, and a white woman cuts right in front of us to order, like she didn't even see us. girl behind the counter almost took her order, and I had to stand up, and I said, excuse me, I said, you don't see us? People standing right here, you just jumped in line. She didn't apologize. She never looked me in my eye. She didn't know it was me. All she saw was a black person or a group of black people, or maybe she didn't even see that because we were that invisible. Okay, I, you know what? I don't know what it's like to be a black woman. I have never experienced or seen that. I know there's people that jump in line, they don't even realize where the line starts, and at a soccer game, the worst thing you could ever do is get between the kid and the parent, especially when there's a line for ice cream after the game, because that's what they live for. <laughs> you know, Brian, it's, it's striking how she only sees race. That's all she sees, a white woman, right? She doesn't know any. She, did she notice anything about the woman other than the color of her skin? Maybe the woman was on the phone. Maybe the woman was distraught. But she just she has broken the world down into white and black, and white white people don't treat black people, at least her, with the respect and the adulation that she believes she's entitled to. That I think is the most troubling thing, and it, it's trivial. It, it, she has had such a privilege life. And, and for her to act this way, I think is so uh, dispiriting it to is. people who are trying to solve real problems. But for her, it's, it's all about skin color. And I think that is what has happened to the Democratic Party. They have become so racially obsessed. So they fetishize race. And, and this idea that uh, all of America is racist, all of white America is racist, that's the fundamental issue. That's what, when they say systemic racism, that is what they mean. They mean it's part of white America's DNA. Now, they limit it to white America uh, as though uh, non-whites can't have any racial bigotry of consequence. But in fact, it is, it is such a, again, dispiriting description of the nation that it's really unfair. It's, it's unfixable to say that white America's DNA is corrupted by racism. There's nothing can be done about that. And, and so I think that that's why this kind of talk is just a dead end. It's a dead end spiritually. It's a dead end politically. And it can only lead to conflict and inter eternal grievance. And that's why I think the Obamas 
have failed as, as unifying leaders in this country. Yeah. This is who Michelle Obama is. This is who she's always been. We've seen hints of it before, but we've never seen it quite this blatant. I mean, the, the line about, you know, uh, you know, for the first time in my life, I'm proud of my country and all that. She harbors a deep, deep sense of grievance. And I, I feel sorry for her because it's a kind of bondage all of its own to go around feeling that way, to look at people that way, to see only the color of I hear you, Michael. We got to run. But uh, your three points well taken. Michael Goodwin, thanks. When we come back, your calls. Brian Kilmeade. Right, so we'll just stop it right there. It's an interesting take, and it's really a good thermometer on the culture within the body politic here within the United States. It shows you that the the racial dialectic is really set. And at first, it was kind of a confusing process, and you had the really the provocation of BLM come in, and now you have people who are going to hold up signs and rally in opposition to that over and against BLM and say all lives matter, white lives matter, pointing out the hypocrisy of um, racism within the black community. And, and so it just brings about the spiraling conflict generation. And we have to be wise. And really this goes to the, the Christian church within America and people who are who maybe in different communities, predominantly Hispanic, or just whatever community or background you're in, whatever church group you belong to, you know that there are people who are Christians within every culture and ethnicity and racial community within your state and in your city. And we need to pray for each other and we need to join together to not take take the bait and to participate in this internecine social cataclysm and political conflict that's trying to be generated here. And ultimately, we need to just take care of our families and look out for our neighbors. And we're not in some kind of monolithic racial group that you can look over and look at somebody's hair color or skin color or eye color and determine who they are, what they're politics are, what their thoughts are, or what their beliefs are. And that's really what this kind of Illuminati-driven Jacobin extremism that we're seeing cropping up, it's really pushing us towards this edge of this precipice. And you can see that it's very dangerous. But those elite globalists behind the tech companies, behind these these enormous media giants, the media outlets, and those who are in Hollywood making these, the influence influencers that are shaping the general public thought. We have to learn how to shape our own thinking and inform ourselves correctly. And the, these type of people are out there within Washington, D.C. and all over the culture are trying to inform people incorrectly with misinformation, disinformation, propaganda, and ultimately leads people to the long, wrong conclusion. And it energizes negative violence Negative. It, it, it energizes people to start looting and destroying their own communities. And those businesses are built up over time, and they don't come back easily. And so then the, then the jobs go. And then the, the different people who are trying to rent homes, they sell and they leave. And, and, and all of a sudden, all the people that had money within the community that are going to leave. And it leaves just the crackheads. And it leaves the drug peddlers. leaves the street rabble. And it leaves the community... In impoverishment. And that's really what the communists are trying to get at. They're really pushing forward this criminal culture, gun violence, illicit drug use. All this is part and parcel to their ambitions of deflating the American culture morally through demoralization and through the process of imbibing the different areas in the community and the different neighborhoods with 
hatred against one another. And we saw this early on, this kind of conflict generation um, in the 80s and 90s between the Crips and the Bloods within the black community as the different groups would vie against one another and try to kill each other in order to have control of the drug craft trafficked into their communities. So you wanted to have the the direct line into selling heroin and crack and cocaine and drugs into your community, to your neighbors, you know, you had to clear out, clear the way. So this conflict between the Crips, the Crips and the Bloods is idiomatic and emblematic of the whole idea of how the power structure handles its enemies. It gets them to shoot each other and sell drugs to one another and to wear different colors and have these different, these gangs are being generated, not naturally within the community, but they're being generated by secret societies. They're being generated and, and enriched. They're, they're, they're really bringing, if you have to go back to Gary Carr's book and the dark web discussing um, dark Alliance, which discusses how the CIA and different groups were responsible for bringing in cocaine shipments and making off the books, black project money by selling these harmful and dangerous drugs into the black community. And of course, you can listen to all the rap albums that discuss how different people would take advantage of these drugs to enrich themselves and destroy their, their own communities. And so this is the kind of warfare, asymmetric warfare, that you can expect to arrive within your community when they're going to be serving the most immoral, degenerate, criminal, and violent aspects of your community with their doctrine. And the mentally ill and the drug addicted are going to become pawns in their game. And so this whole urban subculture, criminal culture, this ideology of violence, this murder cult that is just wiping out generations of young black men across the country can be blamed. You know, aspersions can be cast on one party or another, but ultimately the method of the doctrine that destroys these communities is working. And it is a Confederate anti-black system of destruction that's destroying the black community. <clears throat> At what point that these young men want to start buying illegal guns, shooting each other, sagging their pants, selling crack rocks, getting face tattoos. This is really the propaganda of the, the left and the communists who are taking them down this path. And the mafia, the Russian mafia, or the, you know, the triads, or you know the, the, the Italian mafia, this criminal underculture is ultimately going to be a system of leftism and a system of control through the aristocracy of Europe and the aristocracy coming out of these trilateral countries. And ultimately, there are systems of control that are male-dominated. So you have to recognize that these orders of imperial knighthoods, these Freemasons, if you want, the Templars, they're connected to Islam, to the the holy places there in Jerusalem and through the, the Grand Lodge of Cairo. And these are the networks that give rise later on to the CIA, to the intelligence community. These are ancient networks that have been in place for a long time. So we in America are really an upstart. We're a country that dared to be multicultural, to be multiracial. And these are terms that the left tries to take on as its own, but the left has never been multiracial or multicultural. It's been there to be authoritarian and to enslave mankind, but we here in America have created a political liberty, a freedom under the law, a protection, of equal protection to the law for everyone. And that's something that 
these neo-fascists, these neo-communists are not going to rest until they destroy. And it'll be destroyed in their name. But the actors behind these Antifa, you know, racist groups, these anti-racist racist groups, you, you know, BLM, what have you, the people that are financing and motivating these factors are behind the scenes. And we need to get down to the nitty-gritty. We need to discover who it is that's motivating and funding these neo-Marxist tactics. So let's listen to a little bit more of Mark Levin here as he discusses the destructive, insidious, divisive racial propaganda that we're hearing coming from these neo-Marxists. Commission to take down offensive monuments like the Jefferson Memorial and the Washington Monument. For our dead bodies, for God's sakes. First of all, the idiots, those are federal lands and federal monuments. Still want to give statehood to Washington, D.C.? Hell no. It's the District of Columbia. It's right there in the Constitution. They hate our Constitution because it was written by slaves. And yet they love Marx. His ideology is the responsibility for the murder of 100 million human beings and the enslavement of hundreds of millions more. This apparently doesn't bother them. Not in the least. So they want to surrender freedom to a nation that's made enormous progress. It's a diverse nation where there's significant interracial marriage. People get along if they're left alone. Politicians and mobsters. They want to trade what we have today. Talk about slavery. They want to trade what we have today. The slavery and mass murder of Marxism. Some of these idiots, multimillionaires, even billionaires, as a result of their own freedom. Look at the media. The media and academia have driven this, this agenda to our point, right where we are now. The great piece in the tablet, they look at the New York Times and the Washington Post, among others, Prior to 2013, the terms white and racial privilege appeared in an average of 0.000013% in the New York Times and 0.000015% of all words in the New York Times and the Washington Post, respectively. Between 2013 and 2019, these average frequencies grew by an astounding 1,200% in the New York Times and 1,500% of the Washington Post. Meanwhile, the frequency at which privilege shared the same lexical space as terms like white, color, and skin reach a record high. Spike in the usage of whiteness, similarly sudden, if comparatively modest. And until 2015, the term averaged a usage rate of approximately 0.0001% of all words in the Times and Post, respectively. Since 2015, however, it's frequently has ranged from, and they give numbers, in other words, significantly. An average yearly increase of roughly 500% in the Times and 360% in the Washington Post. Whatever it used to mean, white supremacy is now everywhere and applicable to any context. So a few years ago, 
white supremacy and their variants uh, were used, well, it's likely limited to references to actual card-carrying white supremacists. But as with racism, these terms have since been radically expanded by a rapid, ideologically driven concept creep. White supremacy is now a vague and all-encompassing label. Instead of describing the demonstrably discriminatory ideas and actions of particular institutions or individuals, white supremacy is now understood by many progressives to be the fundamental ethos of the American system as a whole. Twenty nineteen, the Times and the Post respectively using these terms approximately seventeen and eighteen times more frequently than they were in twenty fourteen. And incidentally, white liberal readership of the Times and Post saw marked growth across the same period. So Mark Levin is going to go into it in a greater depth there, and, but it's pointing out like what we've been saying all along, which is that this is really a provocation that's instigated by those people out there that want to make sure that America continues to have racial issues or racial dilemmas or cultural conflicts. They want the racial differences and the racial diversity within America to be problematic and to keep this as a problem that is useful to them going into the future. So as we move forward, future leftists will be able to seize upon the, the racial race wars of the 2020 period you know, and, and, and use that as an ideological marker within time that they can say that these anti-racist groups were standing up against you know, a rate of, you know, that, so that's how they're going to paint the, the picture in, the, in, in these broad strokes. And that serves the, the diabolical uh, and insidious purposes of the leftists and the neo-Marxists and the communists who seek to make sure that we can't have a stable electorate, a civil society where the body politic is strong and cohesive. They're trying to tear apart those different connections that we have within society. And we must remember that it will never work. And we're far too intelligent within America to allow these, as Mark calls them, race baiters or these political provocations to become a problem for us within our lives, within our homes, within our communities. And we have to respect and defend the rights and the pro of our neighbors, the property rights, and to protect those around us. I think this is a really important discussion to have. And as Americans, we have the freedom of thought, we have the freedom of the press, we have the freedom of speech, we have the ability to, to attack these different dilemmas and to address them and to take care of the different outstanding concerns that people have and to have this debate in order to put it in its right place. Because we've had this debate for a long time. You have to remember that the Quakers in the America in America were Protestants who uh, had their, their own churches and had their own Bibles. They were the first to take up abolition of the slave trade and to really extend Wilberforce's voice from Britain into America, and those who had a conscience and could see that the suffering of the people, and they had a real concern about the the, um, <clears throat> the evil of the slave trade, and they were sensitive to it. Why other parts of Europe, the medieval kind of barbarian eras of the past and past places, were maybe insensitive or desensitized to the, the horrors of the slave trade and the, what people were suffering. But when they came to America, the people here were a good society of people that were sensitive to that and fought to to take it, to take it out of existence. And that's what happened to the slave trade. America happened to it. And so we have to remember that. We have to be proud of that heritage. We can't let these neo-Marxists take away what we have earned and what we have achieved in this country. And to really to speak a little bit more to that, I'm going to put on Chris Plan a little bit more. Let's listen to what he has to say. Just interesting notation here. Oh, 
Williams, who is the Democrat state representative from Georgia, African-American man who spoke at the convention, uh, he also got a heap and helping of the mob, and they were uh, shouting the N-word at him because they're enlightened liberals. They put the word house in front of it, so that makes it okay because they're Democrats, they're a CNN and MSNBC crowd, and, and yelling house N-word at uh, African-American elected state representatives is fine, um, you know, because they're Uncle Tom's and everything. This is the Chris Plant Show. Let's take a, a phone call here. Let's go to Johnny calling from Haymarket, Virginia. Johnny, you're on the Chris Plant Show. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me. You betcha. Uh, wanted to share. I lived in Moscow from 98 to 99. I worked with this Christian athletic group called Athletes in Action. Uh -huh. And when I was over there, this is in regards to the paid violent protesters. Yeah. So when I was over there, I met a guy named Pasha, and he ran like, kind of like an underground karate club and weightlifting. So I was training with him and found out that this was literally his job. He would get a phone call. He would be directed how many guys he was supposed to bring and to what degree, what level of disturbance it was supposed to be. Was it a gathering of signs or is it very violent, burning stuff, breaking stuff, whatever. And literally that was his job. He would wait for a phone call. And it was like uh, anarchist on hire type of deal. Uh, which was bizarre because he was very good friends with the director of this ministry over there in Moscow. Was it ended up being in the Bible study with him and kind of helped this guy out that much. It's it kind of a crazy friendship. I don't think a lot of Americans realize it's very real over under communist, socialism, whatever. And I think we might think we're better than that, but we're not. And I think we're seeing a lot of that here now and hearing about paid protesters in these violent areas. Yeah, one of, the guys, on the one, of the, one of the guys shot in uh, Kenosha was a member of the, the Socialist Revolutionary Party in Milwaukee, and uh, I think it was the one with the gun, with the pistol, who got shot in the arm, I believe that's right. Uh, and, uh, and he is also a convicted criminal with a uh, criminal past, as all three of the men that were shot there, uh, all three of them had criminal, criminal past. The man who was shot by the police uh, also has a uh, criminal past. And this is like uh, uh, Barack Obama. Uh, launched a thousand community organizers and uh, and Black Lives Matter and Antifa and you know we had these Black Lives Matter people at the White House and you can't say they weren't organizing they were uh, they were uh, committing violence and they went and met with Obama and then the violence kind of subsided it is an industry there's no doubt about it Johnny That's and right. the left That's the true. left sees this as a career path you know I mean they really do well it is I mean over there. Uh just some other people I rub shoulders with. I mean, literally, we're uh, we're killers. I mean, it's crazy. Different parts of the world where there there are hired assassins and whatever there. But yeah. uh, that's just very again. I think in our bubble in America, we think well, this doesn't exist. But you know, when you look at this disturbance and disrupt, does it help somebody? And to think that nobody or no party would really do it, you're living with your head in the freaking sand. It's being done. Yeah. These people have to get there somehow. Put food on the table somehow. Yep. There's definitely money being paid to put people out there protesting and burning and savaging places. Yeah, well, and they make uh, uh, frozen water bottles to use as weapons to hurl at the police and at other people in uh, 
in uh, where was it in Kenosha they used a uh, bottle filled with concrete and broke the jaw of a 71 year old man who was trying to protect a business where he works and they knocked him unconscious on the sidewalk and then they torched the business and the news media doesn't cover this stuff and when they do they tell you that it's Trump's fault and it's mostly peaceful and that is a real problem a very very real well that's problem. right and you look at the strategy of it too I think one strategy is destruction but the other one is they're waiting for a response and so as soon as police come out and start bashing some heads that's right well then it's like oh my gosh look at all these people and then that's all on video and look they, that's right they're cracking these innocent peaceful protesters that's right I mean there's that's all right. strat the art of war strategy is all behind this it's well played out well thought of yep. once you get past that first that first yeah. layer of makeup that's put on politics that's right and, and who's their candidate this year the mob in the street who's their candidate well, that's right. Well, you got Biden by here is 47 years, and, and, and they all know these tactics. And I say you're seeing more of this violent socialist, uh, again, rules for radicals being played out here in America more and more. And it's not even trying to hide it so much anymore. It's yeah. just a little, uh, yeah. which is revealing, I guess. It is very, very revealing. revealing. Johnny, God bless you. Thank you for the call. Thank you very much. I appreciate you, Chris. See you, bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. There is a uh, uh, an amazing story today in, uh, in in the mix here in in the state of Virginia, the Commonwealth of Virginia. The Democrats in the state Senate there just have passed a bill making it uh, less legally cumbersome to violently assault police officers and judges. Uh, this is pretty amazing Democrat Party stuff. A controversial bill is moving, and they have Coonman, the Democrat Klansman, as the governor. And uh, he's a baby killer, too. He's the pediatric baby killer. Set the living baby aside and kill it later. That's, uh, that's Kuhn Man's uh, approach. Controversial bill is moving for He'll sign it. Moving forward during the current Virginia General Assembly special session. Uh, the Virginia Senate passed 21 to 15 completely along party lines. Passed Senate Bill 5032, which will allow an assault against law enforcement officers uh, as a misdemeanor. If the person uh, attacked is not hurt, see, you have to be, you got to really do a job because otherwise it eliminates the mandatory minimum term of confinement for an assault and battery committed against a judge, against a magistrate, against a law enforcement officer, against a correctional officer, a person directly involved with care, treatment, or supervision of inmates, a firefighter or volunteer firefighter. See, they're making it more legal and more appealing to violently attack judges magistrates, police officers, firefighters, EMTs, they're reducing the penalty for that. At this moment in history, the Democrats and We can really continue on with that and carry on the conversation with that. It's very interesting. Chris Plant, definitely check him out. Now, this is going to really be the end of the episode. We have other things in the works. I'm trying to finish part two of our connection between the rise of Islam and the early Roman Catholic clerics and the Augustinian order primarily and we have other things coming in the works too so I hope you stick by the Looking Glass Forum and uh, work with us here I'd like to hear your reviews your insights any thoughts you might have and if you would like to get on the show to, to have, a, have a discussion we would love that please give, uh, give us an email thanks have a great day